Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Last time you heard from us, we were talking about the pioneers of the steel guitar, and this week we are talking all about innovators of the steel guitar. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. I am so excited to be back with this episode. It is a very, very exciting episode. This is part two of our little mini series that we were doing on the steel guitar and its impact it's had in all different kinds of music. Last time you heard from us, we were talking about the Pioneers, and that was a very in-depth podcast with a lot of big names that you've definitely heard of. So if you haven't heard that episode, I highly encourage you to check that one out first so that this one makes sense as well. Um, But I'm just, again, so excited to be here. (laughs) Well, it's really fun because, you know, it's, we're having a good time with this. You know, I think that uh, we were commenting earlier about now we are on video as well as audio for this podcast. So that's an added element of fun that we can see the interviewees, uh, which is nice and see each other. And it's uh, nice during these times of being uh, sequestered away from each other. So that's really kind of fun. And we get to talk about some amazing people. And that's what's particularly exciting about this episode, because we're kind of going a little depth uh, in depth. Now, you know, we kind of got the cream of the crop last time, all the big names, all the heroes of the pedal and steel guitars. And now we're going to be talking about maybe some lesser known folks, but certainly contributors nonetheless especially this first guy. I think this is a wonderful way to start our podcast. It's with Lowell Kiesel, who started Carvin Guitars uh, in Southern California in 1945. Well, that was the company that became uh, the company. And, uh, you know, born in Nebraska in 1915, he was really exposed to the early days of electronics and figuring out ways of utilizing that in a musical instrument. And that's exactly what he did and did over and over and over again with some amazing instruments, the electric guitar being one of them. And what's really cool is in Southern California, which is where uh, the NAM building is and where I'm located, um, was really a hotbed. You know, we, we always talk about Leo Fender being in Fullerton and Paul Bigsby up in Los Angeles. And of course, um, uh, Mr. Rickenbacker in Irvine uh, for these great pioneers of uh, electrical instruments and guitars. But we sometimes forget about George Beecham, who was also here in Southern California, and Lowell Kiesel. Uh, great pioneers, wonderful innovators who came up with some amazing things. And the pedal steel is certainly one of them in uh, Mr. Lowell Kiesel's back pocket for sure. So I'm really excited that we get to start with really kind of the foundation. Yeah, definitely the foundation. Um, and just to backtrack a little bit before we go into him, I wanted to also just list out who we're highlighting this episode. Um, it, along with Lil Kiesel, we're also going to be hearing from Junior Brown, as well as Paul Franklin, Chuck Campbell, Dodie Carver, and Kay Coster. 
So, um, and they're all innovators in their own way. Uh, you know, some are more direct with the instrument and some not quite as involved with the instrument, but still very key uh, in, in the overall evolution of what the steel guitar is. Um, and so like Dan mentioned, we're gonna start off with Lowell uh, Kiesel and uh, hearing just a little bit about uh, how he began and also just really fascinating story about how his company started and some of the really innovative ideas he had um, in with the company of how to best sell to his customers. So here is Lowell Kiesel. I had an interest in a so-called Hawaiian steel guitar. Even my father would say that this is a beautiful instrument. So I took a liking to it and uh, I spent my hours and spare time uh, just practicing the guitar by myself. Then as time passed, uh, I went into w Wichita, Kansas in my wintertime periods and uh, uh, took up music, music and some art, and also went to uh, a workshop uh, in the, the nights off because the government sponsored workshops in those days. And of course, my interest would be trying to build a better guitar. And I first was working with acoustic type of guitars, but uh, thinking out that it was an electronic age, I began then experimenting with uh, with the electronic type of a guitar. Well, tell me a little bit about that process. What were, what were some of your thoughts? Did you have the idea of just improving on it or creating something new to get a different sound? Well, the, uh, actually, my first sounds, of course, were not electronic. They were type of resonator-type guitars, uh, putting uh, resonators or cones in a, in a conventional acoustic guitar and trying to build a better sound there, which, uh, of course, it, this can be done too. But age and time passes on. Why well, I, I could see that uh, even as a young guy that uh, it's electric time and time to go into electronics to get guitars electrified. Hmm. Did, I'm, I'm trying to uh, picture how you were um, interested in elevating or uh, I should say um, moving the sound process of creating a guitar along. Did you take uh, like national guitars apart and try to figure out how the cones worked and things like that? Yeah, we're getting into the same world here. Uh, this was already somewhat pioneered by uh, other companies, but in high school, which is uh, in the workshop in school, see, I'm only been a freshman in high school, about 15 years old, hmm. and take an interest in this type of thing. So I began it right in the high school. The manual training teacher said to me, he says, well, he says, if you like, you can spend your time trying to make a guitar where the other guys would be probably making cedar chests and things of this nature. Mm. So I just kept all, all my life working into the uh, musical and guitar type of thing. Uh, because of the fact I like the Hawaiian guitar, why uh, this was a good area to probably put the guitar into. And of course it goes that way still this day, mm. that the, you know, this Hawaiian steel guitar is one of the great things. What do you recall what 
was so interesting about the Hawaiian steel guitar? Were there performers that you heard? Was there a particular reason why you took a liking to it? Yes, there was. Uh, uh, back in the in those days, oh, we'll say nineteen thirty, and even before that time, uh, the Hawaiian guitar was a very popular uh, instrument. Even though, of course, they had the, the the conventional wood guitars to use it, but all the radio stations in America, even though it's small time areas. Uh, had a Hawaiian group, and uh, it was a well-liked uh, thing, Hawaiian guitar. It was a completely different sound than anything before. Uh, well, th with the old acoustic guitars and with musicians that were really good, there were groups like so-called South Sea Islanders. Uh, there were really some real fine steel guitar players, even in that area. And, of course, when they had... Uh, the good, uh, good microphones then, good condenser microphones that would pick up tones well, uh, they really produced some beautiful music. Mm. I mean, in fact, some of those old records, uh, even by today's standards, I mean, they had a good sound to them. They were good sound in music. What do you consider sort of a turning point in your life in terms of focusing on, on making guitars? Well, having the, the interest in the music and uh, finding out what other people were doing and other companies were doing in the field, uh, I just figure, you know, it would be something to do, maybe build, as they say, a better mousetrap <laughs> and trying to do and do what others were doing, do it better. Mm. So do you recall some of your early thoughts along those lines? Did you remember perhaps one of the first tasks that you set out to do in terms of improving it? Well, you know, you, you dig up quite of all the information you can from what other people do and just go along your, your narrow way. It's a sort of, you know, I would say, you're kind of born, I guess, with just certain uh, things you want to do. I think a lot of people, uh, uh, sometimes they don't know, but uh, I think you're born to do a certain thing. And when I got into the interest of music and the love of music and the love of the Hawaiian steel guitar, why, uh, that was my thing. And of course, as electronics come along, why... I tried to tie in with it, and like I was doing my little thing in high school already, why there I began already getting doing a part in this uh, evaluation and way of making a music instrument. Hmm. Do you recall some of the people um, who you first heard about doing this experimenting? Well, experimenting, I mean, uh, I know manufacturers who uh, were into the field, like when I came to L.A., why, the first thing I went is out to where the music companies uh, were making music instruments. Because there were people already in this type of business. There was Rickenbacker, and there was National Dobro, and Gibson, 
And they were all in this type of thing, too, that I had interest in. Mm. It seems to me that there were some people that were already well on their way of creating electric guitars. Was that sort of um, a concern of yours, that there was going to be steep competition, or did you just see that you had a niche and something that you were going to follow? Well, there was already uh, such companies as Rickenbacker, Gibson, and all these companies. They were also into the electronic guitar. And uh, I just felt like, well, I guess I'd just become another one of the gang, <laughs> which really happened. Do you have a particular thought about the um, significance of some of those people that I know that you knew of? Uh, in the area at the time, such as Paul Bigsby? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I knew Paul real well. He made, of course, uh, Bigsby made uh, more or less accessories, you know, the special uh, tremolo devices for guitar players. And uh, he was a, a great personnel. I mean, he, I suppose his tremolo device he makes... Uh, still exists today, today probably is one of the best it's made. It, it seems to me just in the history books that he was sort of an unassuming guy that really sort of got into the guitar making sort of in the back door as people were requesting him to make certain components. He sort of just did it upon request. Is that sort of your impression? Well, yes. I mean, he... Uh, he was a smart fellow, and he uh, found out the needs, and he himself uh, uh, he just did the thing, and he did a good job at what he did. Mm -hmm. What about the Rickenbackers? Did you have much association with them? Well, yeah, I knew this uh, family. That is, after I came to L.A., this is the first place I went, was uh, to uh, to Rickenbacker. And he was then, of course, in L.A. there and went out to his plant. And, of course, he was already into the electric guitar. And as far as a steel guitar, he probably he probably invented and made and still does. I don't know how it is today so much, but probably the best steel guitar that was ever made. Mm. He had a certain tone. He had a design on the patent of his pickup that was basic. And, and they did a good job of merchandising it. Hmm. Do you recall about what year that was that you went out there? Yeah, I can come up with just about exact year. About 19... Uh, I can't tell. He was one of the first places I went, about 1936. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, he had already worked on the frying pan, as we call it now. Yeah, he worked on the frying pan and... I was just to a convention this year in uh, uh, here in uh, in L.A. Uh, of uh, where Hawaiian guitar clubs meet, and uh, a lot of these people are still playing the old pancake. <laughs> it was one of the best. It was of a good design. What was the general um, principle behind that? Do you recall? Well, the. Uh, when they invented the pickup, they made a, a design. And the design of the pickup for an electric guitar, electronically, what they designed 
is the best that was ever made and still is today. It had some disadvantages. They had the coils coming up over the top of the strings and uh, uh, for some players this is in their way. Mm. So they have to do away with that type of a magnet design and go to another design. But the idea of bringing the two magnets together, the coil underneath and the strings going between, that made a perfect uh, magnetic situation for electronic strings. Hmm. Quite remarkable considering how early that was. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was an early thing. And when you examined innovations like that, what did you have in your head that made you think, well, I wonder if there's a different way of doing it? Well, you always try to think of a simpler way to do things of this type. And, uh, of course, one of the uh, pitfalls and hardships of... Uh, of anybody, when you, especially when you have no money to work with, that's the hard cap, mm. is uh, uh, how do you do this thing and how do you merchandise it? I mean, you know, you can m merchandise a mousetrap and, uh, and they have a big business. And uh, the, the, the trick of the trade is uh, how do you sell it? Mm. Do you recall... Um your first product that you made, the first thing that you yourself created? Well, the first, uh, sure, I can do this. You can go back into, uh, oh, let's see, about 1944. And uh, there was a music company in, L in L.A. called Fife and Nichols. So uh, they wanted somebody that could build a uh, compact pickup that you could attach... Uh, uh, just uh, put it in the guitar or put it most any place and uh, pick up the music because uh, everybody wanted this guitar magnified. And uh, that this compact pickup, of which, of course, my wife in those days, she would wind the coils. And it was, it's a simple device. It's still pretty much the same. It hasn't changed that much even to this day to pick up the vibrations from strings and and electronically magnify it and get a tone. <laughs> I like that comment about your wife was the one who was winding the pickups. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, well, that's true. She was a very capable person, could do it. Uh, it's, uh, she was just good at this. She had a good knack to do it. Let's go back up to, I guess, the 40s uh, when you started uh, really concentrating on creating your own products. Tell us a little bit about that. <clears throat> Your wife is winding the coils, and who are you selling them to? Uh, that same store in Los Angeles? Five well, I have a theory on this. I call them the horse traders. <laughs> they were the brokers. I mean, they were the people that tried to control this thing. And uh, uh, I sold uh, pickups to some of these uh uh, outlets uh, and jobbers they would call themselves and uh, but the problem was the money problem I mean they, everybody tries to screw the other guy mm. uh, and they did you know they some of that goes on today but uh, they, they try to keep you from going into business and uh, as a last resort I mean I tried to work with these people but I couldn't make a living 
they would take the bigger part of the profit and uh, give me a little or nothing, and they break it. So uh, I just started out selling direct, and selling direct, uh, it comes back to when I was back in Nebraska. I had met some people in Kearney who were selling little, ra little radio items in popular mechanics, and uh, they would sell these things for about $10. And uh, being a Nebraska guy, why I went in from California back to to Nebraska, and I went out to see these people in Kearney. And I, uh, I was in hard times for me. I had the competition. Uh, I couldn't compete with the jobbing crowd. And uh, uh, they said to me, I says, well, why don't you try and sell it mail order? So uh, I did, and I run the ads in the popular mechanics. They had little uh, columns, and we pay so much an inch for these little ads. And uh, me, of course, being, being with little money, but uh, I would uh, I'd say, well, I'll give it a shot. So I then started to uh, to run ads, and in such books as uh, Popular Mechanics. And as time passed on, I got into several different books, just with a minimum small ad, uh, I got my product sold. Of course, I was in selling direct. Mm. I was out of the horse trading crowd that uh, that tried to uh, overpower me. I mean, uh, I couldn't survive. It was uh, time to almost quit. But on the very end, why I guess Lord willing, why was able to keep stable and come along and along and got to the point where we are today. And we have no association, of course, with other people. We do our own thing at Carbon. Yeah, we have no directors or no other outside people to tell us how to run our business. We do it our way, and we're very successful at it. So once again, that was Lowell Kiesel on the Music History Project. And just a reminder for all of you listening, if you are not watching as well, we do have this podcast in full video form where you can see us talking about all of these interviews and you can see the actual interviews themselves. And if you'd like to see that version instead, head over to namnamm.org slash library slash podcast. And that has all of our episodes listed in order, starting with the most recent at the top. Really fun. This is good stuff. Uh, speaking of video, it's, it, it'll be interesting to note that the uh, next guy that we're going to hear from is Junior Brown, who in 2002, during the Nashville NAM show in the summer, um, he took the stage and I got to interview him in front of a bunch of people, which was great because uh, they asked him questions too. Um, and he performed for us, which was awesome. He performed that, that song of his that many of you know called The Highway Patrol. Great. <laughs> it's great fun. Um, and what a charming guy, you know, very committed to his craft. You know, he's the one who came up with this idea that, you know, it would be nice to be able to hold the electric guitar at the same time that you're playing a steel guitar. Well, I'm going to make an instrument that has a neck for each. And, uh, he calls it the get steel and, um, great innovation. Fa fantastic. Um, and he plays it so dynamically, as many of you may know. Uh, he's a great performer. And if you don't know, you must check out Highway Patrol. Um, great. It, it, see if you can find him doing the video because you can see the Git guitar in action. <laughs> <laughs> he Fun is. Fun stuff. 
He's such a fun interview to watch too. I had so much fun and was laughing out loud multiple times watching his full interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a true showman in all the sense you could tell he's just on because like anything else that was going on, like you mentioned, it's at, you know, his interview was at the show on the show floor. And so there's other stuff kind of going on or other interruptions. And he was just on and like making funny comments back and forth with people <laughs> and uh, you could tell he had a really great time and everyone there that was really enjoying it too. Um, so like Dan mentioned, we're going to hear from Junior Brown um, and he's going to talk about his uh, special combo uh, steel and electric guitar and how he kind of just wanted to chop the two of them up and like glue them together. And then <laughs> uh, manufacturers like, well, let's maybe do this a little bit better. <laughs> so they came up with another uh, form of that. So you're going to hear from that. And a little bit about just his influence and uh, going to the circus as a kid and uh, and experiencing rock music and bands and knowing exactly that that's what he wanted to do. Uh, so here is Junior Brown. I always liked to play both uh, guitar and steel. That's really the reason that I needed it. Um, didn't like having to pick a guitar or a steel to accompany myself while I'm singing uh, on a particular song and then I, I didn't like at the end of the song having to pick again and unplug and plug into another that's just very cumbersome so uh, I came up with the idea of a double neck with, with one neck the guitar and the other one the steel and um, that really it, it really works on stage it's really handy because I can switch really quickly between the two. Right, yeah, I've seen you make that switch quite often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I've, I've gotten faster at it than I used to be. Uh, I'll say. You, you know, I can, I can show you here. Just, uh, you know, pulling this out and then the flip of the switch and then back in the little felt-lined hole for the ball. After a few years, you get to words. It's pretty easy to do that. Yeah, I see where you where you you, you kind of keep, uh, keep 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 something going over here on this one while you're grabbing the bar, and he's down there and yeah. he's like picking on that one. And yeah. There you go. Open strings are great. <laughs> oh yeah, I love that. You know what? Being that you talk about open strings at all, uh, I think you're also uh, uh, a bit famous for for your playing that that E string there and tuning that down and. And actually playing some yeah. notes on that. Yeah, yeah. Is that just something you came up with, kind of fiddling around and saying, "Hey, I wish I need these notes down here." <laughs> yeah, it, I. It's one of those things where I, I did it a couple of times, over over a period of years, and then forgot, and then I remember, wait a minute, that was kind of fun, you know? Why not do that more, you know? And. Uh, then I realized, well, there's certain things I should do it all the time with. You know, I don't know, overdo it, but yeah. Uh, yeah. when you have a volume pedal, it's a lot easier uh, because um, if you don't have a volume pedal, the, the note is likely to die. The, it'll die out. It'll decay. But if you have that volume pedal, when you turn it down, it'll just, just stay on. And that's the reason I think a lot of guitar players don't do that uh, because because um, they don't have the volume pedal. They don't use them. Right. I, mean, I, of course, have it because I'm playing the steel guitar you have to so I just got used to using it on the uh, regular guitar as well uh, as I did with the finger picks I didn't used to play uh, a regular guitar with finger picks but when, when I made this thing I 
there's certainly no time to put those on and take them off. So, right. Uh, and that now I've, I've got to where I, I wouldn't want to play regular guitar without the finger picks. It became part of the style. Yeah. So you've incorporated that a lot into mm -hmm. your six string. Yeah, and it gives me a lot more metallic, um, uh, percussive uh, bite on the treble strings than I ever used to have on the on the regular guitar. Yes. No. Tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <Who's the> <laughs> Back there to the left. Uh, next. Uh, who were some of your influences? It seems sort of interesting that uh, you were probably both influenced by steel pedal as well as uh, electric guitarists. Is that about right? Sure. Yeah. I. Uh, well, I usually don't do influences, but uh, for this interview, I'll. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I watched TV in the fifties and sixties and. It was, it was good. I, of course, listened to the radio, but on the TV, you could actually see the guys playing the electric guitars and the steels and things. And, um, that was really the only connection I had to it. Uh, um, if I hadn't seen it actually on film, on the screen, and I really wouldn't have known what a steel guitar was because my folks never you know, took me to any concerts like that or anything. So uh, when I'd watch the Ernest Tubb show, for instance, I could see Buddy Charlton playing this thing that looked like an ironing board, you know, and I could tell he had a little piece of metal in his hand. I didn't know what they called it, but it, it affected me. It did something to me. And, uh, and the same way with, uh, you know, uh, and, and with the rock and roll stuff. Uh, uh, Ricky Nelson uh, would sing on the Ozzy and Harriet show, oh, yeah. you know, and. Um, uh, at the end of I, almost every show, at the end of the show, Ricky would sing a song, you know, and, and there would be James Burton playing the Telecaster, you know, so I could see the whole thing uh, uh, as if I was at, at a concert. So, and then uh, later on, I got to see uh, things here and there. Uh, if I went to the circus, you know, the circus would have a band, and and uh, and I'd go up there and just stare at the guy. They'd have an electric guitar player usually. Uh, and the circus came to our town every year and they'd sit up on a, uh, a parking lot which was right across the woods from where we lived so um, uh, that was a, an, uh, an influence that band and then uh, I went to a March of Dimes uh, a benefit one time down on the street it was like a street dance everybody was doing the twist that's when the <laughs> twist was big you know I'm giving away my age here right and I was about uh, eight years old nine something like that uh, and there was a band playing and I just uh, I just knew I think at that moment that's what I wanted to do just the sound of that live band you know uh, there's nothing like uh, the sound of a live band a recording never quite catches that the, the sort of the brassiness you know the the way the cymbals sound and the way that there's sort of a crispness on the top of it that you don't get in recordings not even live recordings and the, the sound of being right there and feeling that the air coming at you and everything. So that was, those early uh, memories are, are really my biggest influences and I, I draw on those when I'm, when I'm playing. I still, still go back to those for inspiration. Yeah, I've, I've heard a bit of kind of kind of the Hendrix ending at the end of the Hank Garland Tune yeah, in there, you know. Yeah. So I know somehow, somehow you must have one day saw Hendrix and went, "Now that's the guy who goes outside yeah. the box." Or something. Oh yeah. Well, Jimi Hendrix was—he uh, changed it all around. A lot of people don't realize that uh, before he came along, there wasn't much string bending going on, and uh, 
uh, the things we take for granted in electric guitar playing now with the distortion feedback and string bending. And, um, there really wasn't much of that. The Yardbirds were doing a little bit of it, but not near to the the uh, intensity that, that Jimmy did, and he uh, he turned it all around. He gave us a another way of looking at the electric guitar that I was very intrigued with. Uh, I didn't like everything he did, but uh, but I was sure uh, interested in the whole approach and the, uh, the way he'd improvise and, and jam and, and that kind of thing, and the way he was rooted basically in the blues. It was just blues in overdrive is all it was, you know, and uh, with some other things thrown in. I uh, really, uh, it did, it definitely changed my outlook on the guitar. Because before that we were playing, the, everyone was really kind of stiff, you know, the strings weren't, sure. strings were heavier and you didn't bend them that much and you know, some of the blues players did, but... but uh, you didn't light your guitar on fire before that either. Yeah, right. <laughs> I got the lighter fluid after that, went out and purchased my first can, I'll never forget that. <laughs> said Bronson all on it. It was yellow and blue. <laughs> Memories. <laughs> you even brought uh, Mitch Mitchell in on, uh, on yeah. one of your albums there. Right. Uh -huh. he, uh, I liked the way Mitch uh, Mitchell would play the uh, uh, sort of a jazz approach to uh, to rock music. And a lot of, uh, most drummers wouldn't, weren't doing that at the time. They were, uh, they were just pretty straight rock and they didn't do a lot of polyrhythms and uh, paradiddles and this and that and uh, uh, breaking up the, uh, the time signatures and things, but Mitch Mitchell really, really did and added a very nice thing, I thought, to the, to the sound they had. Yeah. And so I was, I was thrilled to be able to get him to, to play on a song that I'd written in that, in that style called Keeping Up With You was the name of it. Yeah. I also have figured out just in listening to your music that you're, um, you listen to music. You've studied some of the people that have uh, been around before you. I'd love for your uh, opinion on how can someone be an influence or create their own musical style on the steel? I mean, well, it's sort of one of those instruments that you just sort of play, or at least that's the notion that most people have. Can you have an original style like a Speedy West? How is he different from somebody else? Yeah, that, well, that's a really intriguing question because um, so many of the styles have been taken. It's sort of like, I'm sorry, you can't use that style. That's it's already been taken, you know. Uh, and it's that way with songwriting too. I mean, there's only 12 tones in the scale, and there's only so many ways to arrange them, you know. So when I write a song, uh, uh, the lyrics aren't near as critical to me is getting a good melody that has that doesn't sound like something else and it's the same way with uh, like as you said steel guitar style guitar styles as well but um, uh, it's uh, it's a tough question and you just have to keep searching you, know, you have just have to keep uh, just trying to find that thing inside of yourself that goes beyond uh, the imitation. The imitation is important when you're starting out, but then you have to cut the umbilical cord and move on and find out what you want to say and capitalize on those little bits of, um, you know, creativity that come only from you. Uh, and uh, the more you play, the more you, you get those and you, the more you can, you know, lean on them. You know? When I had the original idea, um, I was going to uh, glue, you know, 
glue a steel guitar to a regular guitar. Uh, and uh, went to this fellow named Michael Stevens, who at that time had a shop in Austin, Texas, and uh, told him what I wanted to do. He said, no, 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 we're not gluing anything. Uh, we're going to make a body, a single body for this thing, and uh, we're going to make one instrument with two necks. And, uh, um, but it was basically, I mean, it almost looks like two things glued together. It was the same idea I had. Kind of, I had this little dream about it, um, that I was playing this instrument. I, it goes back to this little zither I had. I had a little zither, a piece of a zither. A guy had, in Hawaii had cut off a piece of a zither and made a lap steel out of it. It was very small. I knew it wouldn't play very well, but that was sort of the beginning of the thing, gluing a little zither onto an electric guitar. And then when I went to this guy, he said, no, no, no. When I had that dream, see, it wasn't the zither anymore. It was, it was the steel guitar that I liked to play, and it was the guitar I liked to play. And they had somehow come together in this dream, and I thought, yeah, what's, what's with this little zither thing? You just play the steel guitar, and you play guitar, and you don't have to really, nothing, nothing has to be smaller or anything. And, uh, you know, they make double-neck guitars, they make double-neck steels, and why not one of each? And I've asked that question many times, why somebody hadn't come up with this. It may have something to do with the fact that you want to play the steel this way, uh, horizontally, uh, horizontally, and you want to play the guitar vertically. Um, I split the difference. I have a stand, and so I, a little bit, you have to sort of kill a little on each one and get used to that. That may be one of the reasons that Nobody came up with it until I did. Yeah. Not for everybody. Yeah, Don't I mean, it's, it's not just something you walk in and start uh, you know, playing. It's not like you have a lot of people who play eight-string lap steel, yeah. you know, and, and are able to also uh, kick it up on the six. Well, there are these days. There are more of them than there used to be. When I started playing without the pedals, it was unheard of. Nobody played without them. It, 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 that style had been gone for a long time. Everybody had pedals. That was just what you did. But now uh, that whole lap steel thing has come back uh, in, and a lot of people, a lot of guitar players, kind of play lap steel on the side for a, uh, a novelty type thing. Yeah. Used to be they didn't touch it. They didn't know what it was. The only steel guitars you ever saw had pedals on. And then before that, of course, before the pedals were invented, that's all they had were the non-pedal. Which was in the fifties. Yeah, I've always been too intimidated to to try a steel, and it's like you know, it's got eight strings on it. It's like, what do I do with the other strings? And yeah, first time I ever played one, it was kind of odd because I I wanted it to be a chord that I could slide around, you know, like a slide guitar. And it wasn't a chord; it was a bunch of notes. And wait, I have to pick out little little clumps of the of this of this big thing instead of being a little strum. So that was Junior Brown talking a little bit about his career and his uh, fun invention of a electric guitar and a steel guitar combined together. A little bit more well put together than just you know gluing them together like he had the original idea. <laughs> He's so endearing idea. though. He's like this little kid, you know. You can well, totally picture. Well, I don't care how we do it. I just want just, to do it. Just and chop so, it up and yeah, put it together. It <laughs> and, you know, and he's such a showman, as Ashley said, you know, really dynamic and fun to listen to and fun to be around. So, yeah, that was that was great. And and I hope that uh, 
provides the spirit of what we are attempting to do today, which is get a little bit in depth with some of the folks that have been the pioneers of the innovation of the steel guitar and how it's not just an instrument you make once, you design it once and that's how it is. It has many times been reinvented and changed and manipulated, modified, and that's part of the fun of it. You know, just like the guitar being modified by just about everybody who plays it, we <laughs> have the opportunity to see that the steel guitar was done and is approached the exact same way. Um, and a good example of that is the next gentleman that we're going to be hearing from, whose dad actually makes most of his instruments. He is one of the most sought-after um, studio musicians not just in Nashville, primarily in Nashville, but all over the place. He's in LA and New York as often as you can imagine. And so it took me a long time. <laughs> I mean, I think really about 10 years to get this interview with him. And when it happened, it was like, oh, we're just hanging out. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> this could have happened 10 years ago because of his schedule. It didn't. But, you know, he was very accommodating, very nice. Uh, and I'm talking about Paul Franklin, who if you have purchased a piece of music recorded by anybody in the last 20 years, I'm sure he has been on at least a few of your recordings. I mean, unbelievable output this guy has been on. And I was thinking about listing some of the artists that he's worked with, but you know what? In this case, the artist got to work with him. I'm going to make it simple, you know, really, uh, you know, he's a delight to be around. He adds something. He's got such a high level of musicianship that he'll have suggestions on how to make the whole thing better, you know, through his playing, not just how can I play my part and get out. And so uh, that comes across, I think, in the art of what is Paul Franklin's music, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. So let's jump right into his interview. He's going to be talking about origins of the pedal steel. He's going to be talking about a lot of other players of pedal steel and steel guitars. And then he's going to go into some innovations of the instrument. So very interesting stuff. Here is Paul Franklin. What have you come to learn about the origins of the pedal steel? Uh, well, I don't, you know, I'm not as rich in that knowledge, but the, the pedal steel, I don't know who came up with the first concept of bending the string, but I know the... Uh, uh, the Gibson Electroharp was one of the very first ones. And, uh, you know, and then after that, you know, but guys, uh, the whole thing was, is lap steels, they were to get, you, everybody soon realized it's a very limited instrument, you know, because you can't, if you tuned it to triads to make diminished chords, the flat to five, flat to nine, all the chords you would want to make, you'd have to come up with a new tuning. And, you know, so then it went to two necks, three necks. And all of a sudden it's like the physicality of playing is impossible. And um, Roy Acuff had a muse museum in town, and somebody had done this octagon thing. <laughs> it was like a dial. You dial up, or you just roll it into the tuning you'd want. But I, I'm assuming that the pedals came along. It was somebody's idea to uh, basically give, you know, more tunings, access to more tunings by holding a pedal down. And that was the concept, never for bending. And then uh, uh, it was Bud Isaacs who who uh, did that record, and all the. It was just the most basic intro it's like basically bending it from a one to a four and then back da, da, just like that and then then he resolved it from a five to a one and that, that that was a standalone intro and then then Webb would start singing well that was a massive hit and uh, and and I think uh, I've heard Buddy Emmons and different ones talk about it they said everybody went scrambling to get a pedal you know I got to get that pedal on my guitar 
Lloyd Green and, and the various players of the day. And so that, it, it kind of went from there. And once, it, once that happened, it, was, it became a rabid obsession because there were a lot of great players that had the mathematics and understood theory. So it's like, then it was a competition for who would come up with the best pedal setup. You know, I've got a sharp nine pedal. I've got a flat nine, you know. But, and, and here's the thing. I always say the pedal steel so that people can understand what this instrument really is. Um, if you play guitar, okay, you've got six strings and you've got a physical reach on any given string. You could hold a bar chord, but you could probably get five frets. So that would be the ability to change the notes five different ways. Okay, and you can do that with each string. Okay, that's what my pedal does. So I would have to have, <laughs> with 10 strings, I'd have to have 50 pedals to get that kind of flexibility. So what happens is, and, and this is also the strong point of a steel guitar, uh, that's why they started tuning it triadic. So you, you already, within the tuning, you have chords, and then the pedals, you, you, each player kind of picks and chooses uh, uh, what's important for their musical direction. But it's like basically like playing because your bar is the one finger on the, on the guitar, but you need the pedals are the rest. And so you're moving this up and down the neck, and then your pedals are doing what the fingers would do on a guitar. Very yeah. cool. And you usually you have knee pedals and, and floor pedals. Yeah, the first person who told me about knee pedals was uh, Alvino Ray. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I... I, I uh, I just got to shake his hand one 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 year he passed through St. Louis. I happened to be there and and Buddy Emmons and all the the players that were on the show. It was a steel guitar convention, and he came in and you know and he was very accommodating. He didn't know who I was and and it didn't matter. That doesn't matter. But I wanted to shake his hand. He's really very nice man. And I used to watch him on uh, television on the uh, the King family, right? Yeah. And uh, watch him play. Yeah, he was a he, and he had a jazz band, right? Sure did. Yeah, yeah. He, so he was pine, and I kind of wish <laughs> the steel had. Uh, well, it evolved the way it needed to evolve, but I kind of wish that it it had uh, others had pursued that direction. You know, his direction. Uh, uh, there are a few guys now that are doing that, and it is spreading within all genres. But but um, I mean, he had a big band. He was traveling. You know, and, and, and in many ways, Leon McCall did that with uh, the the Texas swing thing. And he he maintained a band, but uh, it, you know it's it's still out there. <laughs> Somebody gonna do it? No doubt. What are your thoughts about Speedy West? Um, oh, I love Speedy. Yeah, I, I uh, Speedy was a, uh, um, you know, I like Speedy that the probably the Speedy nobody likes. <laughs> I like the one that played on you know Speedy played on Loretta Lynn's first record. Mm. Speedy in the day played very much like the way they 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 did in uh, in Nashville and everything he could play that way and all the crash bar that's flashy but it's like it's like to me that's like Jimi Hendrix putting the thing in. you know it's it it serves that pur purpose and and uh, but uh, but Jimmy uh, but Speedy could really play you know and and I think that as as with all things I, I I would I would love to hear have heard him focus more on that but he did in in the studio and I, I just like I would like people to know that side of Speedy more well said. Yeah. Absolutely. Very diverse guy, for sure. Very, di yeah. And, 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 you know, he wasn't... Nowadays, all the kids that, that come up and say, Speedy West, that's all they know about him. And I always try to say, well, yeah, but there, he could really play. He wasn't just that. Mm, you know? Point. Yeah. 
Another thing I was hoping to talk to you about is just your own rigs and, and your innovations as far as addressing changes to the instrument. Oh, well, uh, I, my, my setup is quite uh, different. I started, uh, well, my E9th and everything, I, I have a, they've a tri I, I hate the name, but they, I came up with this change, uh, several changes on the E9th, which uh, we needed uh, for, for uh, just diversity. You know, they're all the stock, I can, if people are familiar with Crosby, Steele's, Nash & Young, Teacher Children, all those little descending licks were done with the, uh, uh, we have a pedal that goes from fourth to a third. And da, 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 you know, so it gives the scale. And, but everybody plays that, has to play it the exact same way. So I, I uh, thought, well, I'm going to raise the F sharp up to G sharp so that then you can go da, 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 so we can bend there. So now we have the diversity of doing both. And I did little, they're just small little things, but, but, um, and then I came up with this pedal uh, where I dropped the uh, fifth and the sixth string, a whole tone, and the tenth string. And it's the reverse of what Bud Isaacs did. So it's in, instead of, uh, it enables you to lower into, into chords as opposed to always raising up into them. And so uh, that's, as far as the E9 goes, my C6 is, uh, uh, I, I took lessons from Lenny Bro and, and so I, I came up with, I, took, I started with the original Buddy Emmons setup. And, and I still recommend everybody to start there because that's a very st uh, deeply rooted theory uh, tuning. But after I, I realized that Buddy, because of his background, he played a lot more Western swing. A lot of his needs were not mine. And I wanted to play more like a piano player would play a steel guitar. I wanted to play, be able to move bass notes down chromatically. And so, with studying under Lindy, Lenny, I, I understood what it, I understood what I needed. So I've developed a way to walk. So it, actually, you start with my pedal setup. You can start all the way through the tuning and and move each string down a half step. So it's a it's almost a fully chromatic tuning with all the pedals. What is the box? The box? <laughs> okay, my father uh, invented a pedal dobro which is called the Pedal Bro. That's on Forever and Ever, Amen. It's on uh, uh, Keith Whitley's Don't Close Your Eyes. Uh, you know, it's on a ton of hit records and on uh, uh, Dire Straits' Iron Hand off of the, the, their last record. And it, it, it was real popular. So um, I, was, uh, I was doing, uh, getting ready to do a Patty Loveless record. And, um, and, I, and, and, you know, they were they, just in a conversation about them month before that with a producer, you know, I just heard him say, well, we need some different sounds. That's great. You got the pedal bro. Not talking to me, just talking about every player brings stuff in. And so um, I talked to my dad. I said, what if we build, could you build a pedal acoustic guitar? And he said, well, I don't know, because the, 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 the steel guitar cabinet stops here. And then to build a dobro, it had to be about two inches on top. So he said, I don't know how much volume we can get to put pedals if we use the same concept. So he built this box, a rectangle box. It's just got Formica for on the ends. You know, it's never meant to be played. And he said, maybe you can just test it out before a session, get an engineer to run it through and just see if it's what, what the volume is, put a mic on it. Well, I took it to the, <laughs> the, the beginning of the week. Back then we cut, uh, we would record a whole album in a week. And so Patty's, it happened to be Patty's week. And um, I took it in there 
and the engineer, you know, they go, that is cool, you know, and, and so it was like, it was, it was loud enough just as it was. Hmm. And so I used it on timber. She had, uh, I forget what the correct title is, uh, Patty's record. And then I used it on your, You and Your Friend with Dire Straits. That's the most notable, the intro to that uh, You and Your Friend is the box. Mm -hmm. And it's really growling, low string, very swampy. Uh, so anyway, Mac McAnally <laughs> named the instrument because at the end of the week, Jesse Noble, who was the MCA's coordinator, uh, she asked me, well, what do you call this thing? <laughs> so I never even thought about it. And, and Mac just, just call it the box. <laughs> and, and that's the way it got put on the record. And, and then that's how it stuck. Very cool. Yeah. So did your dad make other instruments? Well, he got the patent on the pedal, pedal bro. He made my steel guitars. Going back to when I, I started playing, I got my Fender 400. It was a cable guitar. They were obsolete by the time uh, I started playing. And uh, the mechanisms had changed to more like they are today, more modern, where they can raise and lower each string, which a Fender couldn't do that. And um, so anyway, he built my first double neck, and then he built my second one. And that's the one I used uh, up in Detroit on a, a, a pop hit, It's So Nice to Be With You by Gallery. It's a bubblegum hit. And, and then I moved to Nashville, and my dad went to work for Showbud. You know, building their custom-made guitars, like uh, you know, he built Steve Howe's guitar with Yes, and anybody that was endorsed by Showbud, he would build the guitar. He, he, and a, a gentleman named Dwayne Mars would do the custom building, and uh, so he made, yeah, he made a ton of things. He built a triple neck uh, pedal steel. I've got a an all acoustic pedal steel. You know, he made a version of the box. It's too noisy, you know, because it's it's low volumes and the mechanics. You do hear that, but you know. I, I put it on a couple records, nothing notable, but, um, and, uh, you know, and then a baritone, he made me a baritone steel. It's, I mean, it's nothing unique. You can do that to anything, but, but he made sure the mechanism would, would accommodate. So it's, it's like a, just the same thing as a Dan Electro is for a guitar where it's an octave down and you, and so you can play all those low, low things. And, uh, and I use that as well. That's really cool. What was your dad's name? Uh, uh, Paul. <laughs> I was named after my father. I mean, we have actually have a different middle name, but okay. Yeah. Very cool. That's yeah. really interesting. So that was Paul Franklin talking a, a little bit more about uh, some of the fun stuff that him and his dad has made uh, made over the years, uh, including we don't think we brought this up before, but the uh, box steel mm. guitar the is it a box steel guitar yeah basically and they um with a dobro mixed in or something mm -hmm. yeah so, his dad know, again, designed that yeah yeah again it's just always evolving and you know having those innovative ideas of hey what if we did this what if we did that you know mm -hmm. so more great stories um from him and also i know last episode we were doing a lot of uh song recommendations uh for them and for him i would just say one that I very quickly went and listened to was uh, the Randy Travis Forever and Ever Amen, because A, that's a great song, <laughs> and B, he plays in it. So I got to hear, you know, his his musical stylings with, with uh, Randy Travis. So there's one to listen to if you want. Yeah, Paul's really cool because he has this great unique opportunity in that going into the sessions as often as he does with all these different producers and different uh, artists, he can get an idea of what sort of sounds people are looking for and then call his dad up. Hey, pop, 
they're looking to something like this. And then his dad comes up with it. I mean, it's just really crazy, Pretty but it's system. a great, it's a great system. Absolutely. And we all benefit from it. <laughs> <laughs> so right. up next we have another really innovative guy. Um, Chuck Campbell, the Campbell brothers are probably best known for their blues and all of their religious music. Uh, our good friend, shout out to Brett Bonner, our friend over at the Living Blues magazine in Mississippi, who connected me with Chuck. Um, fantastic guy. I, I think you guys are going to love this interview uh, segment uh, if you're not familiar with him and his music. And I also would urge you um, to listen to some of his music as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because he and his brothers have recorded some really fascinating music, uh, utilizing lots of different genres, including this song called Automobile, one of my favorites of his. Check that out. And uh, alongside the, um, the uh, church and, and gospel music that they recorded, there's a song that uh, is very well known uh, in those circles. It's called The Foot of the Cross that has his, um, his steel guitar uh, solo in it that I think you will really enjoy as well. So um, yeah, great musician and wonderful guy. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, again, innovative. I mean, he had the background in with church music and, and gospel music. And then as you'll hear him talk about this, about it in his interview, he starts to kind of dabble a little bit in electronic stuff and adding that in there. So, <laughs> I mean, not something I would naturally gravitate, put the two together of gospel and electronic music, but he did and uh it's a very interesting story to hear so uh we're gonna hear a little bit from chuck now just talking about what he's done with the uh, with the steel guitar and uh and just kind of talking about the history a little bit of that so here is chuck campbell in the 70s i was able to not only some had tried to play the pedal steel in the church but they had never adapted our tuning so they were trying to play pedal steel like the traditional, what you would hear in country western or swing. And I was able to, um, you know, I give all the glory to God. I was able to tune the instrument, leave it in a straight um, E-tuning, major tuning, like most lap steels, and adapt the pedals to it and still be able to do the country and the, uh, the swing and the traditional pedal steel job, but mainly we could do all the stuff that we do, which was more bluesy and rock oriented, if you want to put it in a genre. And so it, it was more rhythm based. And the thing about the um, playing the instrument, as the generations went, Willie was more into playing the melodies. Uh, the next guy, Henry Nelson, was more into rhythm. And he played a lot of rhythm on the steel. And every player after that, it was a combination of rhythm and melody. On the key side and the jewel side almost sounded a lot like uh, Delta Blues stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the background um, guitar players that backed them up almost sound like anything you would hear blues Delta playing. But then the leads melodies were, uh, it's like combining the church on top of um, Delta Blues. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So to the instrument, did you have to physically change the pedal steel to accommodate the uh, tuning? Well, the pedal steel is an instrument that is 
I call it programmable. In other words, the pedals can be put on any string and they can make the string go up two or three tones or come down two or three tones. So instead of like a guitar fingering to make notes move, the pedal steel, you press pedals and it will move one string or two or three strings at the same time, but move them a, um, a set amount that you program it to by tuning it, tuning the pedals. You tune the strings, then you tune the pedals. Where I had to do physical work was I had to go underneath the carriage and change the um, pedal setup to adapt it to our tuning. And from that, I was self-learned um, to learn that notes were, you know, you have your, your root, your third and your fifth, and your major tuning. And then I would take the, the fifth and pull it up to a six, or take the third, pull it up to a suspended, or drop it down one to a minor. And that's how I learned to adapt that. And um, from the different tunings that we had in the church, there were guys that played in a major, some guys played in a seventh. So I was able to put these on the pedals and I can go from pedal to pedal and go with the different tunings that we had in the church. So I could play like the different heroes that I had from the church that played like Henry Nelson might play in a, a major, uh, major tuning, but he had a third in the bottom. I could press a pedal and have that or play like Calvin Cook who didn't have a third in the framing and just had um, um, roots and fifths and just play like Calvin with the press of a pedal without tuning up. And then from there, I started trying to mimic um, different, um, they put me over the choir with the steel. And it was the first time someone was able to adapt the steel to a choir because I was able to play the minors and the major sevens and things of that nature. When the craze was the Hawking singers, um, Edwin and, um, and Walter Hawkins and James Cleveland and Andre Crouch, when those type of choirs start and start singing, they started using more exotic chords in the songs, rather than like the caravans who used mainly major, you know, chords or Rosetta Thorpe who used major chords and things of that nature. Very, very interesting. And you know your stuff. This is great. <laughs> and so tell me what led to the idea of uh, bringing in effect pedals. That's very fascinating to me. Well, I grew up in the 70s, so I started playing in um, 69 was when I really started. 68 when I got this deal and when in 69 I started playing. And I rose very quickly as a prodigy from the age of 12. By 14, I think I was playing in national convention, which was unheard of um, on my own merit. You know, I didn't have my father wasn't a big minister at the time. So there was a buzz through the church that I was doing some 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 things that hadn't been done with the steel. Mm -hmm. And the, the 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 bigger players such as Calvin Cook and Ted Beard, I actually played drums for them. So they took me under their wings and I was already a national player. And they kind of like helped me and I would go to the assemblies where their local assemblies in Detroit. Detroit was a mecca at that time for, the, for us. Um, but to di differentiate myself, I lived here in Rochester where the company was MXR was, was here. Um, and um, 
they had all kind of pedals at the time, and I knew guys at the music stores. And uh, uh, my steel and Robert Randolph's steel came from the same store here, the House of Guitars, who was in the steel. And, and they had all effects. And I started using effects. One of the main ones was an Ebo that sustained the string forever. But when I took it to church and started playing, it sounded like a soprano singer. And people went berserk. And then I started using like uh, touchwise and uh, um, uh, phasers and flangers. And at that point, I started getting out there a little bit. And uh, then distortion was a whole nother thing. But it, it allowed me to mimic some things not only in the church, but what that was on records at that time. And gospel records were starting to sound similar to secular records because there was starting to be crossover of producers and things and gospel players, people were in the same studios. And so I was able to mimic guitars. And uh, uh, so one of my main influences at the time was uh, um, Ernie Isley from the Isley Brothers because um, the Isley Brothers we weren't allowed to listen to um, any secular music but when you would go to high school of course you would hear it and the Isley Brothers was one of the few groups that actually had some songs that almost were gospel like a harvest of the world and things of that nature mm -hmm. and so Ernie Isley was my um, I started mimicking his 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 licks and stuff on the steel, which put me in a, a good light with musicians in the church, but kind of like got me, um, <laughs> I, I wasn't as in favor with the um, higher ups in the church because they said I was starting to make it sound more like rock. And of course, then there was a whole slew of players that started coming behind me playing pedal steel. So I had peers and had people coming under they started taking this thing to a whole nother level in the competition. The effects were part of you doing a better job of um, praising the Lord. Hmm. Yeah, church resistance is an interesting thing, isn't it? Yes. I think just by gleaning a few things from you today and hearing a little bit about it, you could probably write a book about that. <laughs> yes, uh, in fact, um, <laughs> Bob Stone has written a book about the Sacred Steel movement, and it starts in the and it's it's really fascinating the documentation that was done on that. But uh, I found this happening, and the strange thing is to be on the road with and then run into like uh, Mavis Staples, and she telling me stories about how her and Pop Staples and the group were looked at in church. You know, a, a lot of us come out of the church. And that, that's not just African-Americans. That's uh, one of the guys ran to Greg Brown. He came out of the church. He's a folk player. And uh, you get the same similar story. But what the church ended up doing was uh, our brother and I often talk about uh, in our concerts, did the blues come first or did the gospel and musicians, you know, wise, music wise. And we think they came pretty much together because... The same guys that played in the juke joints on Saturday ended up playing at church a lot of times. And a lot of those juke joint players were guys that got they started in the church or were minister sons. Mm -hmm. And you can almost go down the go down the line of pop singers, especially back in the 50s and 60s, of everybody father was a minister. Mm -hmm. 
And so, start with Aretha, right? Right, and <laughs> and uh, I mean, you can go back further. I mean, you and BB uh, King once told us he saw we played at his club and he opened for him. He says, uh, "I love that still." He said, "But um, the church doesn't like you playing out here, right?" And we said, "Wow, uh, how would you know?" He said, "Cause I played for the church," and he said, "I played um, for gospel groups." One group he played for actually was on the road with the Soul Sirs. And he said, uh, he said, um, they didn't want to pay you or they just want you to play. But the church, I think the church's position was we listened to you when you were no good. Which for me, when I first when I played the first time in church, they told me they unplugged me. They just said, no, no it's terrible, terrible. But as I got good at it and became accomplished, uh, you know, it was uh, you become a part. So they. They're like, well, you, 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 you owe us f for listening to you when you were no good. And so the, the thing about it is the church, the church has its own rules that it has to keep with. And sometimes those, you outgrow those rules as an artist. Mm. The, the flip side of that is there's no better feedback as you're growing and no better competition. I often have told people that for me, the church was always like American Idol. It would always be a deal of you against other people, especially at um, conventions or convocations where the best from around the country would come and you would have people almost out in the audience judging you. And it, what would tell you if you were great, if you went on in the competition, if you will, to, to stick with the analogy, is if you got to play more conventions or you got to play conventions around the, around the country because you were, you were the top or felt like you was the top. But the critics were worse than Simon Cowell. <laughs> Some of them were worse than Randy. And then you had the people like, Paul Abdul that, oh, if you keep playing, the Lord is going to bless you and you're going to be playing all over the world. And, you know, we thought that was not going to come to fruition, but it did for us. So once again, that was Chuck Campbell on the Music History Project. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to the NAM website, namm.org. Uh, that is where we have our entire oral history collection located. You can head to nam.org slash library to see the full collection. And it really adds a little bit um, to see these interviews in person. And some of them even have the full interview posted. Um, and if you're searching through tags and you're very much interested in pedal steel or the steel guitar, we have a tag for both. So you can see everyone that we've interviewed under that topic. So awesome. check it out if you get a chance. Very cool. Thanks, Mike. That's that's really great. And, you know, we hear time and time again that uh, people get lost for hours going from <laughs> tag to tag, which is great. I love that. That's really neat. Yeah. So as we continue with our uh, special podcast uh, today dedicated to the innovators of the uh, pedal and steel guitars, I think it's a, a neat opportunity um, for us to talk about this next guy, Jody Carver, who's one of our dear friends here in the Resource Center at NAM. I've known him for many years and um, charming guy who has passion like no other person I've ever met for music. And 
what a dynamic dynamic career he's had, uh, not only just as a player, a musician, a sought-after studio musician in New York uh, going back to the 50s, but also as a road rep for Fender in the very early days when people would uh, kick him out of the store for trying to sell him a block of wood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great stories of working with uh, Manny of Manny's Music and Sam Ash Company, um, string of stores in New York as well uh, back in the early days and having these great relationships with people, especially with um, Mr. Fender, as he would call him, Leo Fender and Mr. Randall, Don Randall, who was Leo's sidekick, uh, if I can say it respectfully, uh, the guy who basically came up with all the business model that became uh, the Fender Corporation, as well as coming up with ideas of naming the guitars differently, like, oh, let's call that the Stratocaster. Yeah, there was a guy who did that. <laughs> um, and Jody knew him and respected him very much. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really uh, have gleaned from my relationship with Jody Carver is the respect for other people that he respects. You know, he has uh, a long career, really has known some wonderful people. And uh, it's been a joy to learn from him. I also really enjoy his playing. If you get a chance, my recommendation is a 1958 album called The Hot Club of America, which is a takeoff on the Hot Club of France, which was a jazz album. Uh, this album was uh, dedicated to showing off his uh, steel guitar uh, skills, which he does very well, and especially a tune that was very popular at the time called Autumn Leaves. If you get a chance to check that out, you will hear Jody in all his glory. Uh, and just circling back a little bit with what you talked about, Dan, like it, he really was his uh, being a salesman. He really valued those relationships and those friendships. And he mentions uh, in this upcoming segment uh, about Speedy West, who we talked about in our last episode, uh, and many many people have referenced him because he's a pioneer. Like we. Put He's him in speedy that West. He's Speedy West. What <laughs> else can I say? Um, and he actually, I guess they both kind of worked in the same, um, you know, lane for a little while and they were good friends. And he talked about how he's going to talk about how he had the friendships alongside of the salesman friendships, you know, like they were all the same and he wasn't going to, um, you know, kind of step on toes or anything like that. That just wasn't who he that wasn't who he was. So that was uh, kind of a nice little story I thought that I included in on here. Um, so we're going to hear um, from Jody Carver now, just talking a little bit about uh, Fender uh, and Leo and uh, being a salesman with Fender. So here is Jody Carver. Leo Fender was like having a, a dear grandfather. And uh, my respect for him was, well, the happiest years of my life were with, with Mr. Fender and Mr. Randall. There's one fellow in Vashon, Washington, that fixes the pickups. He will do them for nobody anymore. His name is Jason Lawler. I call him the good ship Lawler Pop. And I, I go say, the only one I know that these days, if you want to get your pickups done, these trapezoid, they call them trapezoid. The real name was direct through string pickup. See, today the strings go over the over the pickup. Over the, yeah. These are like a tunnel where all that one magnet inside picks up the whole thing. That's why it has such a round, full sound. 
can hear this thing crack. It'll this cracks like a, like a, I don't know, knock the walls on the little lamp I have. This is a lamp I practice with. I could take the wallpaper off the walls with it. <laughs> Tell me about the your first position with Fender. Did they give you a territory right away? No, endorsing. Oh, endorsing. Yeah. Okay. And I was working as a, I'm working as a liaison man. Mr. Rennes, I want you to work as a liaison man because of your history of knowing all the musicians. I think we should have someone who can be on the same level with them. And I did. I got guys free guitars like Bucky Pizzarelli and, you know, freebies. They appreciate it. And I did it with Henry, Henry Goldrich. So. Did Speedy have his own tuning? His own tunings? Yeah, Speedy had his own tunings. He gave them to me. Speedy and I were friends, and he gave me all his tunings, and I always, I always admired Speedy West. We were dear friends. And uh, the last we got to speak to one another, well, he, he, owned the, he ran the warehouse. Randall and I flew out there, Randall's uh, jet, this is after CBS, and he went to the warehouse, and Speedy was there, and uh, when I was in the plane, I said, Mr. Randall, how do you see through our fog? It's easy, Jody. I go look at those instruments and tells me where I am. If there's a, somebody up above me, I get down. You know, whatever. And we got there, and Speedy was very nice. And well, I knew Speedy before. I, mean, I knew Speedy back early on. Uh, Speedy was an influence on me and helped me. And uh, he passed away uh, November fifteenth of two thousand three. Mary wrote to me, Mary West. The sweetheart of a girl, and uh, she said, "Jody, you were the last one to speak with him." And she says he got really down after that. And she said he always told me, he would, he told I got it on the computer. He told me of all the fun you both of you had. We did. Mm. We were friends. I, I try to make as many friends as I could. With the sales business, I was the only salesman that wasn't the competitor, in the sense of, you know. I would always respect the guy who was in this store. I'd leave him to his business, and they appreciated that. We were on the field, we were salesmen, but off the field, we were always we were friends often on the field. Hmm. And that's, that's the way it was. How do you put into words what it's like for you to have made music during your career? Making music. I enjoyed making music. I was over, overly critical of myself. I never thought I sounded as good as I could have on the recording sessions. And I had no choice. If they said it was fine, they said it was fine. I never really had the, the chance to. The only time I was able to really cut loose with, with, with the Hot Club of America and the Arthur Godfrey show. That's true. Mm. So. so how do you want to be remembered? There's a guy who was there at the right time, a guy who was proud to know Leo Fender, and I loved Mr. Randall like he was my own father. And and I was, I may not be have been the best Fender salesman, but I was the proudest. That's it. That's true. Hmm. Well, you were damn good, too. Uh, <laughs> I hear all kinds of stories about 
Jody being the one who helped their store in a tight spot by yeah. helping them out. You know, yeah, I helped them out. I covered them on there over the past two balances, and you know, I I did what I could. Uh, well, those things are greatly appreciated, yeah, as you yeah. well know. That's why I get people like, well, Jerry Ash can't say anything but good about me. I loved all of them. I love Bernice, Swish's sweetheart. Yeah. And Paul, geez, I'd love to call him on the phone and tell him you're here. Oh, God. <laughs> That'd be so great. I miss those days. So once again, that was Jody Carver, a big name for steel guitar in the Fender world. Um, I highly recommend you check out his full interview, which is posted on the NAMM website. Um, check it out if you get a chance. And next up, we are going to be hearing from our final name in this podcast, and that is Kay Coster. Woohoo! What a pioneer, <laughs> Kay. And it was such a delight to get to know her. Um, unfortunately, we've lost her now, but boy, she was a pioneer if ever there was one. Um, owning her own music store as a woman in 1940, the same year she started two bands. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable career. No big um, deal. <laughs> And, you know, uh, a side note for those people who uh, are good students of the instrument and companies, Al Frost was a very good friend of Kay's, and uh, we learned a lot about him. Uh, Al was a guy that headed national guitars that um, whose son so kindly donated all of his father's uh, archives to the NAM Resource Center. So we are surrounded uh, by the boxes behind Mike, you can see uh, some of the archives at NAM. There's a great portion of them that are the uh, coveted and uh, well-respected collection of the Al Frost um, archives. And um, what was really, really neat about that is that he was so meticulous in all of the things that he saved over the years that we have a great documentation of not only uh, the National Guitar Company, but all of his competitors. You know, he had all the patents of all of his competitors and all well-labeled and great stuff. You know, just it seemed like he was a really... Um, smart businessman uh, in, in in addition to being an innovator. And so having Kay's personal recollection of him and just honing in on her aspect of what he was all about was really very meaningful. It really kind of gave us the full picture of who the guy was, uh, knowing somebody who knew him. Um, and she was, she was unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> there's no question in my mind that uh, what drove her was the smiles on students' faces. You know, she talked about that probably more than she talked about anything else um, when I would talk to her at length on, yeah, how you doing, Kay? Oh, well, the student that could not figure out how to make this chord finally made this chord, and oh my gosh, she <laughs> smiled from ear to ear, you know, that kind of thing. She was really into perpetuating musicianship. And um, as a teacher going way, way back, she saw just about every trend there was and was really one of those teachers that embraced it. You want to learn how to do rhythm and blues? Okay, great. Let's do it. You want to <laughs> learn country? Fine. It, whatever motivates you to play the instrument, I'm going to teach you how to do it. And um, and not, as we all know, not all teachers do that. I think more and more do these days, which is wonderful. I, another thing that she pioneered. Um, and of course, looking just at the, the steel guitar, 
what a what an amazing player. She had this great touch. You know, we talked about Buddy Emmons's touch and approach to playing this instrument. I think she is probably the only one I can think of that could rival his his approach as far as, you know, the the dynamics of the soft touch and and playing it just the way um that brings out or accentuates the instrument and every ring, you know, and, and vibration. She just really had this unique talent in order to do that. And uh, of course her style was very Hawaiian based. And in fact, um, you couldn't leave any conversation. If you went to her home, you would walk out with a lay, one of those plastic lays around your neck. And she was really into it and it showed and it, and you can hear it in her music as well. Um, so the Hawaiian wedding song is the song I recommend. It's on uh, the internet uh, by, by Kay Kosser. And um, you will enjoy that. It, it demonstrates exactly what I'm talking about. That is a kind of visit like, I want to have where I get a Hawaiian lay at the end. That's right. a nice vibe. I like yeah, that right? vibe. That's Always a good vibe. feel like you're on vacation. That's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Just listen to some Hawaiian music, have your lay on, you know, nice and relaxing. And she's so fun. You know, she's yeah. just, yeah, just a fun person. And I mean, when I listen to her interview, you know, it's amazing what she accomplished uh, being a woman and during the time frame that she was able to accomplish these things. And she just, I love that she had this like kind of almost, blase attitude of just well yeah i just did it like there was never any question in her mind she's like no i just kept moving forward and i kept you know and she still taught even after uh her store closed and things like that you could tell that that was really her passion was teaching kids like you mentioned before dan yeah um, without a doubt you know one thing i forgot to mention that i really want to make sure i do and that is a shout out to our old uh, partner here at the resource center elizabeth dale who uh, helped us gather an inventory Kay's collection when she passed away her collection of archives were also donated to the resource center and thanks to elizabeth we now have all of those resources well documented as well and then make sure i did that <laughs> Get a shout out, Elizabeth. Thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so rounding, ending up this uh, podcast of the innovators as we are going to hear from Kay Coster, who, like I said before, definitely an innovator, uh, not only for women, but just in the, in the steel guitar in general. Um, and she has this great story that I kind of want to highlight for you uh, that she'll talk about in this segment, but talking about, uh, being repairing instruments in her store and uh, how men would come in and kind of be like, well, no, who's, you don't <laughs> repair the instrument. And she's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> Give me your guitar. I'll repair it. Uh, just again, her, you could really tell her personality from that story. And so I uh, hope you guys enjoy this last segment with Kay Coster. And so what was your first musical experience? Well, when I was 10, my grandmother took me over in a big field that had a tent in it, and they used to have medicine shows at that time. <clears throat> and there were two men in white pants and shirt and red cummerbund and a red lay, and one played a, a lap steel and one played the rhythm guitar. And uh, on the way back I said, Grandma, I, I don't know what I, I don't care what else I do in this whole world, but I want to play some music like that. Of course, there weren't any teachers around at that time. And uh, so 
Um, then as I got older, I, uh, my folks made me take piano lessons for eight years, and I cried every day because I wanted to play the guitar. So I finally got me a $4.98 guitar from Sears, and I would tune it to the piano and then put a piano roll on the piano and pump it really slowly so I could see what keys would go down. And then by looking at what key went down and for how long, I would write it on a piece of music. And so um, after I copied several piano rolls, anything I could hear, I could find on my guitar. So that's how come I had a dance band and a radio show before I had taken any formal lessons. Wow. Yeah, I heard you had a dance band pretty early on. Where did that idea come from? What? The, the dance band. You, you, you formed one pretty early on. Oh, yeah, 1940. Well, before that, I played in a regular band, but um, a Hawaiian, my Hawaiian band called Aloha Islanders uh, started in 1940. How did that come about? Did you have a gig to play, or did you just form it hoping to find work? Well, we played at a lot of churches and uh, public affairs, mm. and then... Uh, I learned to play uh, rhythm guitar, and then we had uh, the rhythm airs, and that was accordion, sax, bass, and me and rhythm. And we wore formals, and uh, the men didn't like us too much because we weren't very good, <clears throat> but we looked nice. And we got all the jobs in the nicest hotels and clubs around, so we had a good time. <laughs> Did it occur to you, Kay, in those early days that it was unique for women to be doing what you were doing? Or did it ever oh, occur? yes, my goodness. Even after I had my store, somebody, a guy came into, I remember him in particular, he wanted a tailpiece put on his Gibson, and he had the tailpiece. Okay, so I knew that I would have to drill a little bigger hole in the end and take a very small drill. You never started with a big drill because you could crack it. Anyway, this guy comes in and, and he said, I'd like to see your repairman. And I said, well, I'm the repair person. You do this? Yeah. I said, and we put it up on the thing and he showed me what he wanted done. And I said, uh, just have a chair and I should be a half hour. I wasn't busy. He said, well, uh, you're going to do this, huh? I said, yes, I have done a lot of them, really. He said, well, I'm going across the street and have some coffee. He couldn't stand to watch. <laughs> so, yes, I felt, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I'd be on the floor with my ratchet screwdriver, the back end, the lower part of the basements and showmen and bandmaster amps had 29 screws this long. I didn't have an electric screwdriver at the time, so 29 screws. And some, uh, uh, some of the men would come in and say, Kay, what are you doing on the floor? So pretty soon they'd be down the floor helping me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun. I, th I think I'm one of the lucky people in the world that I got to do what I really like to do and still able to do it. Because I've been doing this since, uh, I think, uh, the year after Columbus came over. <laughs> <laughs> Close to it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I was I was thinking earlier about um, all of the adjustments that you've made with the guitars, particularly I think about like the Fender line when it was early on and you were able to do so many of the repairs. Did you did it ever occur to you to uh, change the design or do something different with any of the instruments? That idea never appealed to, never came into my mind because they were going like hotcakes. Why change a good thing? Mm. Uh, let's see. There was one fellow, I don't know. I told somebody about it yesterday. I hope I don't repeat myself. Um, there was a guy that bought a Fender pedal guitar. They made pedal guitars for a while. And uh, I used to demonstrate the Gibson A-harp and uh, multi-chord and the Fender pedal. And um, Chot Jackson made one. What was that? Anyway... Um, oh, the I used showbud? Showbud, yeah. Uh, I demonstrate them at home shows in the area for White Music Center. and uh, But then they had so many different tunings that I gave up. I didn't have time to practice and play five, play, teach that many students and play weekends. I played weekends for about 50 years. And uh, the last 17 years I played in a country rock band. A lady came in the store with some leather on and boots, and she said, "Hey, Kay, we lost our we lost our lead player. He went in service. Didn't even tell us he was going. We got a job tomorrow night and Saturday night. We've got bookings for six weeks at least. No, no lead player. Why don't you bring your guitar down? We're at the Polish Falcons tomorrow night. Bring your guitar down and and play." I said, oh, I don't know. I don't think I play your kind of music. She said, we play a lot of country. And we, da, da, da. So I, I went. And then she, it went really well. So she said, we're booked tomorrow night, too. Can you come? Okay. So uh, then the next week, it was the same thing. I said, well, you better get somebody. Uh, I, I just don't have time for this. Well, anyway... Um, it's it so happened that we played 17 years. The country we take one off the top 10 a month, one off the top 40 every week. We practiced every Thursday from 7 to 11. So I had my part, and we we were a really rehearsed band, and um, I really got to like rock and roll. I remember at my store before uh, I had to uh, close it up because of the skid row moving in on it. Um, my teachers would say, Kate, you're not getting out of this room until you learn to play that rock and roll strum. Come on now, come on. So the young kids could do it, you know, but I had a hard time to learn it. But once I did, I really liked it. And now that's the only reason I keep my uh, current students is because they give them some of those old venture tunes, with, you know, of rock and roll from the 50s. And they just love it. Honky tonk, walk, don't run, wipe out. Oh man, yeah. When the spotlight would come on me, I was in heaven, you know, and I'd get to play it. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I played 17 years with that group. So that concludes our uh, second episode on the steel guitar, this time focusing on the innovators. And I hope you guys all enjoyed that. I know I had a lot of fun doing all of this research and listening to all these amazing interviews and kind of putting together the storyline. 
And it's a fun storyline. Hats off mm-hmm. to you, Ashley. I really appreciate the extra effort you put into these two podcasts. I think it really shows the dynamic of this topic, uh, the depth of the topic, and the brilliant pioneers and innovators behind it that we have been able to capture. So um, I hope you guys have all enjoyed this podcast as much as we have. I really do believe that uh, this is one of my all-time favorites. It's really been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, my closing thought is uh, for those of you who have learned a little bit from this, um, I think that's fantastic. That's really what we would love. And if you have the chance to listen to some of the music, um, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear what you liked and, um, and what you learned. That's really important to us. Uh, you can always email us at library at nam.org. And with us being all kind of not being able to quite travel yet, and you need to uh, kind of go on a little vacation, I really recommend listening to a lot of these people and their Hawaiian music, because <laughs> I did that the other day, and I felt like I was on a little tropical vacation still for like bopping. an hour. She's bopping <laughs> along to it in her head. Just, yeah, yeah, just, you I know, swaying along, yeah. imagining a nice cold drink in the beach. It's great. So yeah. <laughs> close your eyes and put on some ocean sounds as well. It'll really, exactly. it'll really sell the vibe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you everyone for listening to this episode. And if you came from the first part of the series for that episode as well, we will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of the music history project. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. <laughs>